That's where I grew up. It was in Split, Croatia, right next to the tennis courts and a house right across from the tennis courts. So naturally, like, I always had this connection with tennis. I found that tennis it was my outlet. It was a way for me to meet friends and it was a way for me to have an activity. So I started teaching and not only did he give me like kids to teach, he gave me his private clientele at 13 years old. It was terrifying because I was teaching like doctors, lawyers at oh 13 God. years old, telling them what to do. Being around my dad, I saw how he was doing it and I just okay. kind of copied him. But then as you start doing something, you start trying to figure out how to help the person that's on the court with you. And I had to begin this problem solving at a very young age. At that age, having the courage to tell an adult and giving them the maximum effort, giving them a really good value for that hour, that was one of the biggest reasons why I'm the coach that I am today because I began teaching so young. So I started with YouTube. Everything I learned, I learned from YouTube. How to use a camera, how to edit, how to upload a YouTube video, how to do a description. And I started uploading on YouTube and there's a saying that you're not gonna be good on YouTube until you've done 100 videos. You only get better, just like tennis. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Welcome, Nicola, to the first episode of the amazing tennis podcast. I'm so honored you're here and I'm very excited that you're going to uh, be talking about your story. Um, we're going to talk more about um, your business, your life, and then also how you impacted me and, um, and my my uh, tennis journey and my business journey as well. And I want to just say that I'm very honored to be the first guest on your podcast because I know you're going to have some fantastic guests along the way. So I'm very honored that I'm number one. Yes. And I, I really, it's very special to me that you are because you are the one that, um, you, you're one of my mentors and you are somebody that really pushed me from the beginning mm -hmm. and believed in me from the beginning. You know, like that means a lot to me and you still do that. You know, you, you motivate me honestly all the time. You push me and you believe in me, which, mm -hmm. which matters a lot. Um, so you, you help me uh, grow my business in the social media aspect. So, um, so just a little bit about your background. Um, you were a coach. Okay. Um, did you play before? Like what's your well, playing? I'll get into my whole like background. playing and teaching history, but I just want to say... I want to go way back and how we met. And this is going back, oh, it's got to be at least 10 years, if not more. I think Something it's probably like 10 yeah, years ago. Yeah. And I was teaching at a place in Wellington and you were teaching next to me. And I would see you on the weekends teach. And I liked the way you were teaching. I recognized that you were a great coach. I could just see because I've seen thousands of coaches. I grew up in the coaching industry. Like I said, my dad's been a lifelong coach and I started coaching very young. I'll get into that later, but I saw you and I knew you were good. You had that certain something that a lot of coaches don't have. You had that and I saw that. And then naturally, I asked you if you were willing to coach my daughter, who back in those days was trying to be a high-level junior player. She was trying to play tournaments around here and I asked you to coach her and then you coached her for how long? I think it was maybe two years. Yeah. Something like that. Before I made the decision to leave it up to her whether she wanted to continue with tennis or not. And it turned out that it was more my desire for her to play rather than she wanting to play tennis. 
And so I left it basically up to her. And it turned out that I liked the idea of her playing tennis more than she liked playing tennis herself. And it turns out that now she plays once on a blue moon. And before we used to train every single day for like six years. Yeah. And we had the great Emma as a coach. <laughs> but I think it's a better decision because I think a lot of times if the parent pushes tennis upon the kid, they might continue to do it, maybe out of fear, and they will eventually quit if they don't have the passion for it. They'll either quit at 18 or they'll quit at, at 22 when they're done with college, they'll eventually quit. So I think the most important thing is that the kid likes tennis themselves. That is the most important thing. You can't like push tennis upon someone. It has to come from within, there has to be a desire, which was um, sadly missing with my daughter. And this is where I recognized your talent as a coach because you recognized that. After a few sessions, you came to me and you said, Nick, she just doesn't want to run. She doesn't want to move. Like she has nice strokes, which was so true. I taught her like beautiful technique, mm -hmm. but she just didn't have the desire to fight and to run for balls. And we talked about this the other day. If you don't set the ball up perfectly, the technique doesn't matter. You're forced to improvise. So yeah. the willingness to move. Federer once said, the best movers are always the best players. So it's one of the most important things in tennis that my daughter lacked and now she plays tennis for fun and it's all good. And that's how we met and then naturally we continue to um, work together, we continue to see each other and then um, when you were ready to embark on the social media, you know, yeah. route, I was right there to help you and uh, I'll continue to help you as much as I can yeah. until the day comes where you <laughs> pass me where you get more subscribers than me, more followers, and then I'm going to be, one, going to be the one asking you for advice, okay? That yeah. day will come very yeah. soon. Yeah. Uh, let me go back to your first question and kind of explain my history. I already talked about the fact that my dad was a big influence on me just because he was a coach, and he was a really great coach. Um, have you ever played in Split? Have you ever yes. played tournaments there? Yes. You know, there's a famous tennis club there right on the beach? Yes, yes. I've been there. You've been there. Mm -hmm. It's 10 courts. They used to host Davis Cup. They have like yes, a stadium court. Yes. And my dad was one of the head coaches there. Okay. And he worked there for many, many years. And we lived, that's where I grew up. It was in Split Croatia, right next to the tennis courts and a house right across from the tennis court. So naturally, like I always had this connection with tennis because since I was a baby, I had the, the tennis courts right next to my house. In fact, from my terrace, you could see like three courts and you can see the wall. Mm. And back in those days, the wall was packed with like 20, 30 kids waiting in line to hit against the wall. Oh my God. You know, it was, those days was uh, crazy. Tennis was booming like crazy. But in any case, you would think that I would have the passion for tennis because I live next to the course. I did not actually. Right. But my dad was a coach there and he was the head coach for the girls junior team, the Yugoslavian girls junior team. Back then it was still Yugoslavia. As you know, this was going back in the... 80s. Yes, this was back in the this was back in the 80s. It was still Yugoslavia, and he was the head coach. And he would travel with the teams to like the European Championships. He would travel to like what you call now ITF tournaments. Yes. I don't know if they yeah. called those ITF back in the day, but it was a lot of great tournaments in Italy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And on on some of the trips, Monica Sellers was on the team. Okay. So my dad yeah. got to work with Monica. My dad also got to work with Goran until Ivanishevich? he was yeah. Uh, my dad was really good friends with uh, Serjan Ivanishevich, who was uh, Goran's dad. Okay. They were really close friends. 
And eventually Goran left to train at other places um, because he was like, I think the best player in Europe or one of the best players in Europe. So he didn't stay in split, but my dad worked with him as well until he was like 13, 14 years old. But then naturally, I'm sure you know this, since you're from that part of the world that you didn't really make that much money back in those days as a coach in Yugoslavia. So a lot of great coaches from that area would go to places like United States or Germany, Austria, France, mm -hmm. because you could make so much more money. Yes. And so this what happened to a lot of great coaches from that part of the world. And my dad did the same thing. He went to Austria first. He was there for a couple of years. And my mom and I stayed in split and he would be gone pretty much the whole year. And he would come back on the weekends and we didn't really get to see him that much. And then he took a job in Germany, in Stuttgart. He was there for a couple of years. Same thing, my mom and I stayed in, in split. And then he took a job in the northwestern part of Germany. And my mom and my dad decided that this was just too difficult of a distance. It's very difficult to not be all together. Yeah. And then they decided that we all moved to Germany. So when I was nine years old, we moved to Germany. Now, interestingly, I played tennis in split. But I played more, let's say, recreationally. I would play once or twice a week. Just in groups or with I would have private lessons oh, okay. with this great coach, one of the best coaches ever. And, um, and the, the coach would say, Nick, just, he doesn't want to play. He just doesn't have the passion. I yeah. did not have the passion. Because yeah. there were so many, like being in split was so fun. As a kid, there was so much to do. Mm -hmm. You had the ocean right there, the yeah. beach right there. You had the city right there. So the last thing I want to do was play tennis. So I did not have the passion for it. Okay. But then when I moved to Germany, I didn't speak any German. I was in a relatively small town. It was like, at that time it was 25,000 people. Okay. Relatively small town with a beautiful club, big club. And I found that tennis, when I moved to Germany, was my outlet. Like It was a way for me to uh, meet friends. And it was a way for me to have an activity a fun activity. So I started hanging out at the tennis club in Germany all day. And between the age of 9 and 12, I, I wasn't very good. But I started getting the passion for it and I started training a lot. I started training on a daily basis for multiple hours. On the wall with other kids, my dad would put me in group lessons. He also started training me uh, personally with private lessons. But then all of a sudden, like, I got a growth spurt and at 12 years old, like, out of the blue, like I started playing really well. Mm. I started w winning like um, nationally recognized tournaments that are counted towards a national ranking in Germany. In Germany. Okay. And so I started winning these ranking tournaments. I started like, I won a bunch of them. I started building up a German ranking and from the age of 13 to 16, I became one of the best junior players wow. in the country of Germany. So I really jumped in my level quite a bit, but the passion for me with tennis began when I was uh, nine years old when I moved to Germany. I didn't have the passion for it when I was in Croatia. Now something super interesting happened because my dad is such a great coach, he actually put me on the court. And a lot of people might think this is crazy, but he put me on the court to teach lessons when I was 13. Oh, so you started teaching when you were 13? Yeah, so when wow. I tell people I have more than 30 years of experience, they, it's like, How? Nick, you're not that yeah. old. How can you have that much experience? It was because of my dad. He put me on a court that young, wow. which in a way made me the coach that I am today because it gave me so much experience, but in another way held me back as a player. And I'll get okay. into that in a little more detail, but 
so I started teaching and not only did he give me like kids to teach because kids can be quite easy to teach as you know mm -hmm. he gave me his private clientele at 13 years old so how did you you were on the court next to him and no. he was there you was were there a, by yourself absolutely he had there was four indoor courts at this club in Ahaus, Ahaus. It was three courts next to each other like this, and then they built an extra court that was a single court. Okay. There was like, had a door you couldn't see inside. Mm -hmm. And that's what was my dad's court. Wow. So I would go in there wow. and teach these people. There's nobody around. And it was terrifying because I was teaching like doctors, lawyers, businessmen at oh 13 God. years old, telling them what to do, which was so difficult. But how did they take that? Sorry, how did they, like how the, an older man and doctor or lawyer comes and is like, oh, why is a 13-year-old teaching Well, me? first of all, I was at a good level where I can rally with them. So okay. it was at least a hitting lesson. But being around my dad, I saw how he was doing it and I just okay. kind of copied him. But then as you start doing something, you start trying to figure out how to help the person that's on the court with you. And I had to begin this problem solving at a very young age. But mm -hmm. not only that, but also at that age, having the courage to tell an adult, like a professional person who's busy, who's taking one hour out of the day, who doesn't want to waste that hour, and giving them the maximum effort and uh, giving them a really good value for that hour, I learned to do that at a very young age, and that was one of the biggest reasons why I'm the coach that I am today, because I began teaching private lessons so young, and I, to this day, find that that is my specialty, like one-on-one -on -one instruction. I find that with one-on-one -on -one instruction, it's the most optimal way to correct somebody's technique. But in any case, so I started teaching, and I had quite a few hours per week. And throughout my, my teenage years, I had probably 10 hours a week, sometimes 15, sometimes 20, and I would go to school. But then I would also play tournaments on the weekend. Mm. And then when I finished school and a lot of my friends started traveling to the future circuit and I started trying to get ATP points, I didn't do that because I didn't see the value in it. Because I knew that these guys were investing money to travel, to go all over Europe, to go all over the world, to try to get points. They're actually putting money, not making any money. And not only was I making money for, from lessons every week, I was also making money playing tennis uh, by playing for a club and playing prize money tournaments on the weekend. So I had like the perfect setup, giving lessons, making money from that, playing the clubs, making money yeah. from that, playing prize money tournaments and making money from the prize money tournaments. I'm like, why would I go play futures when I have all that? So in a way, the fact that I had this schedule of lessons was one of the main reasons why I never really wanted to leave because I didn't find the value in it because I had to give up so much money and I had to spend the money on top of that. So that was kind of held me back in my own playing career a little bit, the fact that I was teaching so much. And then in any case, I did try to play, let's call it pro for a year. But during that year, I couldn't travel because I had to do call it civil service in Croatia. You know what I'm talking about? No. It's like almost like military service. Oh, I know. Where you, yes. For one year, it's mandatory. Yes, yes, I know. Yeah, and I know. I always had a lot of injuries. And um, I was eligible with my injuries and the ailments that I have to get out of that. And my dad was trying to get me out of that. Mm. 
And um, what ended up happening was they held my passport for like a year and a half, and I couldn't go anywhere. Oh, wow. So during that year where I was able to travel, I didn't have a passport, and I couldn't go anywhere. So the year where I didn't go to school, I just played tennis, pro, I was just playing prize money tournaments in Germany and teaching lessons. And um, that would have been a year to, to travel a little bit, and I probably would have done it that year, but because I didn't have a passport, I wasn't able to win. I got so tired of just playing prize money tournaments, I did not like it at all that I decided, you know what, I just want to go to the United States and play college tennis. Because okay. I had some friends that play college tennis, yeah. and I was like, I just want to have structure in my life. I'm the type of guy who likes structure, okay. and I felt like what I was doing didn't have a lot of structure to it. It really wasn't any, any type of prospect of improvement, yeah. being stuck in Germany and not being able to go anywhere. So. I told myself, as soon as I get my passport, I'm out of there. Okay. And so we started working on getting a scholarship. And I had a really good um, junior ranking, number one. I had a really good men's German ranking. And the year, that year, I had beaten a tons of great players. I'd beaten, I remember I beat the guy who was like top 20 in doubles, Peter Nieborg. I beat him that summer that I went to college, and I kind of used that as my advertisement to get into a good college. And I got a lot of great offers. Uh, and I considered only two schools. One was um, Virginia Commonwealth University. You know this one? No. VCU. Back in those days, they were top 10 in the nation. Wow, OK. And they offered me almost a full ride. It was like a 98% scholarship. It's a big deal for a guy, right? Big deal. And, but I wouldn't have played number one. The guy told uh -huh. me I'd probably play number three. And then I had a couple other offers, but the other one that I considered only because I loved talking to the coach was Murray State University, where the coach was Mel Purcell, a former top 20 ATP player, who is the most charismatic guy that you'll ever talk to. He's, he was an unbelievable guy to talk to on the phone. And he offered me a full ride. I had no idea where Murray was. I had no idea where Kentucky was. I'd never been in the United States prior to that. And uh, simply by talking to Mel, I, I, I grew a liking to him, and I decided to go to Murray State University. Wow. And so then, Mel picked me up from the airport, I landed in Nashville, and it was a two-hour drive to get to Murray. And then once I got to Murray, it was a little bit of a culture shock. Oh. Because, you know, having come from Germany and then moving to Kentucky, it's a culture shock. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, you went to Texas. Yeah. It's somewhat similar, but it's a lot better. Baylor is next to Dallas, right? Yeah, but it's ba still a very Wake, small. Waco, Waco yeah. right. But Murray, very small town, pretty much in the middle of nowhere, a couple hours from Nashville, close to the Kentucky Lakes. Have you ever been in that area? Actually, I haven't. Okay. I've well, never been, in so. In any case, it was a beautiful place, by the way, but I had a little bit of a culture shock. But once I got a little bit of comfortable, after about a week getting my comfort zone there, I started loving it, and I had the best time of my life. Not only like personally, because it allowed me to develop individually as an individual. It was great. Uh, also as a tennis player, I put so much effort into my college career as a player, and I loved my coach so much. I loved all the guys on the team. I loved the assistant coach, Raymond, and I gave it my absolute all, and I played my heart out for four years. And it was by far the best time of my life regarding my tennis. So naturally, um, because I tried so hard, I worked so hard, 
In the summertime, I would go back to Europe and I would play the prize money leagues. I would play a lot of prize money tournaments. And my level was, was very good my senior year. I was beating a lot of good players. And I could have tried to go on and continue to play. But at that moment in time, it didn't make any sense again. If to yeah. me, I, I'm a very like calculated person. I'm not going to make any crazy decisions. So I looked mm -hmm. at the situation. I was done with playing tennis. It was two choices. Either it was actually three choices. It was do a master's degree, start working, or try to play futures. Mm. And I considered all of them, but playing futures was like my last option. Least, yeah. Because I would have to put, I would have to probably ask my parents for money. I'm a very, yeah. prou I'm a very proud person. I'd never ask anybody for anything. And I, you know how much it costs to play. Yeah. So for me, it was a no-brainer. I was like, either I'm going to do a master's degree or I'm going to start teaching. And I actually did try to get a master's degree uh, for a couple of months. Uh, masters of exercise science. I thought mm. that made a lot of sense. I did get a bachelor's in international business, but I thought that if I get a master's in exercise science, if I want to continue in the sports field, it made a lot of sense. But I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. I dropped out after two months and I um, started applying for teaching jobs and I ended up in a place called Rockford, Illinois. And I got a job as an assistant coach at the Clock Tower Racket Club. And this place was Phenomenal. I, I'm surprised you don't know this because they used to have a $100,000 ITF tournament there. No, you never played? Never played have you ever played Midland? Midland I did. You yes. did. So it was Rockford and then and Midland. Midland. Okay. And Midland was, I think, 150. Yes. And Rockford was 100. Yes. yes. So I worked at that club. Okay. And working at this club was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had because I learned so much about being a coach. First of all, I learned about how tough the job can be because I started putting in a lot of hours. I'll never forget on the weekends, I would do 12 hour days. I would do 24 hours in two days wow. of privates. Can you imagine this? And back then I wasn't making a lot of money. I was making $24 an hour. Wow. My lessons were, uh, I think 50 bucks and they were giving me a little bit less than 50% of the lesson, which is normal, you know, it was fine. I wasn't really complaining about that. Um, but that's what I was doing. I, I did a crazy amount of private lessons. I also was the stringer at this club, so I really worked a lot in those two years. And then I decided that the Chicago area was too cold for me. I needed sunshine, and uh, luckily I found a job in Hawaii, and then I lived in Hawaii for a couple of years. Wow. And got married, and then because... Um, my ex-wife was pregnant at the time. We decided to move to Florida because she had family in Florida and I wanted to be closer to my family as well. And that's how I ended up in Florida from Hawaii and where of course I continued to teach. And in Hawaii I was working at um, a resort okay. and I was running a, a local tennis club there. So I really enjoyed that experience. And then when I came to Florida, I was an assistant coach again and I kind of worked my way up in mm -hmm. different clubs and then uh, and eventually became a private coach but also had an academy with a friend of mine so I dabbled in like a lot of different niches of the tennis instruction industry before finally uh, taking a job in this area close to where you, where you live Emma and this is where I began training a lot of high-level juniors 
And this was one of the most pivotal moments in my teaching career because this is when I started to develop my teaching methodology. And I told about this in my video where I give a tribute to my dad who passed away last year, where what happened to me as a coach with my methodology was that I was teaching a certain way when I was in Europe under the influence of my dad, who was a coach who was technical to the point where he would teach the fundamentals, but he was a coach who focused on intensity, hard work, and the mental part of tennis. And maybe you can identify with this, having worked with coaches in that part of the world, but the mental part is one of the most important aspects, because that's what controls a lot of different things on the court. Your discipline, your consistency, your footwork, your intensity, and that's what my, my dad was great at. And I basically was influenced with him, and that's how I coached while I was in Europe. But then when I moved to the United States, when I moved to Rockford, Illinois, I started getting a little bit of influence by the American style of coaching, which is very technical. Okay. Where you get a lot of coaches who will do 10% hitting, 90% talking out of a one-hour lesson, where in Europe it's reversed. It's 10% talking, 90% hitting. Mm -hmm. So I started being influenced by that. And my style had switched a little bit. And I had the realization after years of, of doing things differently, and there was a couple of instances where I started training my daughter when I would go to Germany, and my dad would see how I was training my daughter, and he would, like, he would start yelling at me, like, why are you... For example, I was teaching my, my daughter pronation on the serve. I was teaching my daughter to drop the racket on a two-handed back, mm -hmm. and I was like going deep into technique on mm -hmm. my daughter's game. My, my dad was like, what are you doing? Like, we had an argument, and I started talking to him, well, sure, Pova does this, and yeah, she does this, and he's like, dude, don't talk about that. She's like seven years old, why are you telling her this? This will happen naturally. He didn't get into any great detail why I shouldn't teach that, but he just told me, what are you doing? Don't do this. He mm. knew this by feel that this was wrong to teach like that. Mm. And I didn't, uh, this had, didn't have an impact on me initially. I was just angry and I continued doing it anyway until I slowly started understanding like what he meant and I started understanding that there are certain parts of strokes that are happening intuitively. In other words, we as players are not conscious of certain technical elements that happen, happen inside the strokes and it's mainly due to the acceleration of the strokes. Certain parts of the strokes happen so fast that we're talking about milliseconds that we can't, even if it wanted to, know what happens in those areas of the stroke. And that was really the, the building block of what is now intuitive tennis. I understood this, and I understood what my dad was telling me at that day when I was training my daughter was exactly that. Not to mess with the intuitive parts of the stroke, but that wasn't enough. You, you can't teach someone and just say, you know, um, don't worry about it, it's intuitive, yeah. it'll happen on its own, but it can't work like that. So I needed to understand the fundamentals. What are the true fundamentals? And that's where I began my research. I always talk in my videos about my research. It was when I was teaching in Wellington that I began doing a tremendous amount of research, trying to understand what are the technical elements that all high-level players, all of the elites, all of the greats have in common. And I was able to establish the fundamentals on every single stroke and I began teaching only the fundamentals to my students. And so, what I started realizing is that 
if you possess the fundamentals. With acceleration, the intuitive elements will happen completely on its own. And I did this with my students and it worked. And it was my students and the parents of the kids that I was teaching, they were so amazed with this methodology because we had worked together for three, four years and we saw the results. We had the footage on the iPhone. You can see, hey, look, this girl was playing like this four years ago. She started working with you, Nick, and look at the way she's playing now. It was an unbelievable difference. Mm. And so it was the people that I worked with that convinced me to put this material out to the world. And so I decided to write a book. And this is, going, this is in 2017. And I started writing the book, and that's when I came up with the name Intuitive Tennis. And I didn't get very far with the book, maybe 60 pages in, and I kind of gave up and decided to bring this information um, to the people, put it out there in video format. And that was the beginning of the Intuitive Tennis YouTube channel in April of 2018. And pretty much right from the get-go, because the methodology was already developed from prior to me starting the YouTube channel, once I started the YouTube channel, while my delivery wasn't the strongest, it was very shaky, I wasn't very good in front of the camera, the content was strong. Yeah. And people understood that this was not just some BS me talking like nonsense. This was really based on a lot of research, based on case studies on the court. And right off the bat, like my first five videos all have more than 50,000 views. My third video has over 250,000 views. Like I started growing very fast right from the beginning and it continued to grow since then. And that's, that's my story, Emma. Wow, what an inspiring story, but truly, like, I always, okay, even, even before you were intuitive tennis, mm -hmm. you know, like, I always looked up to you, you know, you said how you saw me on the tennis court, like, I saw you and I was, I was just starting out as a coach then, right. you know, and I was okay too, and, but then once, and when we talked more than when I saw your approach, but also looking at your videos and, mm -hmm. Um, it's for me, like I, I don't watch too many tennis instructional, um, instructional videos. Right. Uh, probably I only watch yours. Right. <laughs> um, You're busy. You got so much I going on. I am busy, on. but also like, because I want to fill in my time with the right information. Right. And I trust you. You know what I right. mean? Because I know all the research right. and everything that you've done and that you've put in. Exactly. Um, I know I know it's good. It's good, right. good quality, you know? And I really trust you. Maybe it's also because I know you, right. you know? Mm -hmm. So that's why. Um, I really look up to you and, you know, I always ask you for advice because we're all learning, right? We're always learning. I think, of, and you might agree, you might not agree that every good coach yes. is constantly looking for ways to improve. You know, this game is evolving and uh, the sport and it's changing Absolutely. a lot, the technology and everything. And you always no have to it. be, you always have to be on top of it. Right. And I think you're very good at it. And you keep with, you keep going with your research, right? Oh, it doesn't stop oh, with everything. You cannot, you can't ever do that because if you do that, you become one of these coaches who still is, is mesmerized by the Continental Grip and the straight yes. tape back from Chris Everett and yes. is still teaching that to the local ladies yes. team as the best technique. So you can't do that. You, you have to follow what the best players do. I based 
what the best way to play is and what the best players do. I take the best players of the game, use their technique as a benchmark of how tennis should be played. And of course, technique changes as time goes on. Yeah. And I watch very carefully. There are some differences even in the way the next-gen players play versus, let's say, the big three era. There are some differences. For example, the two-handed backhand technique has changed. There's more and more guys with different styles on the two-handed backhand. I'm not going to get into details now. But there's differences on the forehand. There's differences on the serve. So tennis is evolving, and I keep my eye on it very yes. closely, and I continue to... Uh, study it. I continue to present my research on my channels, and this is something that every coach should do for sure. Yeah, and I want to I want to really focus to um, talking a little bit more about your online business and how sure. you grew it, uh, because I know there's a lot of people that are trying to do what you're doing and yes. to be as, as successful as you are. Um, we want to know your secret. <laughs> no, but I I want to know like how you start, like, not how you started, but like how you grew your YouTube channel. Was that your first, um, uh, was that your first um, platform? And then you went from there to the other platforms. And then you also have a course right now, correct? That, can you tell me a little bit more, sure. like just if, you know, somebody's want to start it now like what would be your advice for them sure. how to start it where to start where are good ways um just just what your no. advice would be and what you would change maybe like if you were starting all over of course you know? yeah well it's a very complex question i, I could yeah. talk about this for 10 hours yeah it's so complex but i can just tell you that before i decided to present my information in video format i was a consumer of ten instructional tennis content on youtube Okay. So I was aware with all the players in that in that niche, the fuzzy yellow balls, the top tennis training, accessional tennis. Okay. I was very familiar with them. So I was a watcher of the type of content. So I knew what type of format to do the videos in. Okay. You know, not that I copied anyone, but I knew that you know you just put your camera there, you stand on the court, and you talk and you demonstrate, and it's very simple actually. So I started with. YouTube and everything I learned, I learned from YouTube. So mm. how to use a camera, how to edit, how to upload a YouTube video, how to do a description, how to set up your mic, which mic to buy, um, which tripod to buy. I learned all that on YouTube. That's why I love YouTube because you, it's an endless source of education. You can learn everything on there. So everything I learned, I learned on YouTube. Everything I learned, I did it completely by myself without any help from the outside. And I started uploading on YouTube. And there's a saying that you're not going to be good on YouTube until you've done 100 videos. Oh. The masters of YouTube, they will all tell you the same thing. You have to get 100 videos in to, to get good at it. And I do think there's a lot of truth in that. Because if you go back to my channel, um, when I first started, the first... Well, let's say the first 50 videos, the first 100 videos, the presentation skills, the editing skills, the entire package was a lot weaker than it is now. Now I've gotten a lot better. I just released a video where people were think, thanking my editing team. I'm like, no, there was no editing team. It was just me. Oh, I'm really? the editor, yeah. And so I've gotten a lot better at editing. Uh, and it, you only get better, just like tennis. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Now... 
I also am a firm believer that you want to put yourself on as many platforms as possible. So from the first day, I, I went on Instagram, I went on Twitter. I kind of was on Facebook for a while, but I'm on Facebook too now. I'm on uh, TikTok. And I was on Pinterest, but I got kicked off because oh. I was posting too much. Really? <laughs> they me off. Yeah. Really? So I'm everywhere. So I'm basically curating content for each platform individually. And I, it's a lot of work. It's a grind. It's very time consuming because you got to understand when you get into this field, you're, you're going to have to teach. You're not going to be making any money from it. Don't expect yeah. to make any money for a long, long time. And if you try to be a little too aggressive or try to make money, it can backfire on you. Yeah. So you're going to have to be patient to make money. So it's going to be a lot of work for nothing, basically. And that's where a lot of people give up. Yes. They start doing it. They see they're not going anywhere with it. And they give up and they stop posting. So you, it's, it's about perseverance, hard work, and just being patient and enjoying the process. Not really looking at any end goals of getting rich and getting famous, but enjoying the process of coming up with the content idea, presenting the content, content recording the content, editing the content. If you enjoy that process, I think you, you're going to like uh, this job. If you don't like that, I think there's still a future for you in this field. You might have to outsource some of those things and you can still be a player in the field. But in any case, you have to be in love with the process and not be in love with the end result. The, and that's so true that I, I agree. I agree with you 100%. But you know, like on the other hand, when somebody is just starting out, you have to make money too, right? So like you yeah. still had to teach tennis, correct? But and that's what I'm saying. You, that's, that's what I was saying. You, but have, then you have to, to yeah, go ahead. You, yeah, you have to understand you're not going to make the money. But then it's, it's the grind, what you're saying of being on the tennis court and then coming home and editing all night and then being well, on the tennis court. But you enjoy the process. Exactly. But you, the thing is that you don't... You know, quit your tennis job, your teaching job, and say, I'm now an influencer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to be broke. Exactly. You keep your tennis job until the social media starts bringing in at least as much money as your tennis gig. I would yeah. say probably wait until you make double the amount of money yeah. that you make from the court. Then you might have to, then you might be okay with quitting your tennis job, but keep your tennis job. The social media game is very unpredictable. I didn't really answer your question completely because you're asking about my the way I make money. Yeah. So there are ways of making money on, on these platforms. YouTube has a partner program called AdSense where you can get money, but you do have to be in the millions of views to get decent money from it. Millions of views per month to make decent money at it. So there's, a, there's one way to make money. Then what a lot of the, I call them OGs because they've been at this game for a long time. Essential Tennis, Fuzzy Yellow Balls, Top Tennis Training, Jeff Zalsenstein, you make money from selling courses. Mm. And course sales mm -hmm. are mostly going to be successful course sales are going to depend on two factors. Either running ads or having a large email list. Mm. Right? And so these guys are, have huge email lists, all of them, because they've been at, at this game for a long time. So if you have a huge email list that you're going to be able to sell a lot of courses, or if you run a lot of ads, you'll probably be able to sell a lot of courses too. So it's a matter of when you do your free content to have some kind of lead generator mm -hmm. where you can, in a way, protect yourself 
in the case that YouTube takes your channel away or something happens mm -hmm. where you have your own group of clients yes. that you're taking away from YouTube for yourself, put them on your own private email list that you can market to them directly. Yeah. And it's your own thing. So that's, that's what I did from day one. And this information is available on YouTube. Again, I learned yeah. this from the, not necessarily in the tennis niche. There's so many channels on YouTube that will teach you how to make money online and so on. And of course, um, I teach lessons still to this day, a lot less than I used to, but that's another great thing about being on social media. More people will ask you for lessons. Yeah. One thing that I do a lot is video analysis. Okay. I do a lot of video analysis where people send me videos of themselves playing and I analyze it and I send it back to them. I do Zoom lessons as well. Oh, okay. I do phone consultations. And I have my own membership site where I feature pr premium content. Have you heard of Patreon? Yes. Yes, it's kind of like my own version of Patreon where I have, I see. Okay. I, I have my own membership site. It's very cheap. It's at intuitivetennis.com. It's okay. $14.99 a month with a seven-day free trial. Okay. And I have courses on there. I have um, extended versions of lessons that are featured on, on YouTube. Oh, so I like I'll put like, for example, on YouTube, I'll cut the lesson. Yeah to 10 minutes while on my website, uh, my membership site, I'll feature the whole 30, 45 minute lesson okay. edited. You know, so I have full version of that. I have several uh, menus of videos that are premium content that I don't feature anywhere else where I talk about things that I don't talk about on my YouTube channel. Um, I have a tactics course on there. I have a member Q&A. So I do a lot of content on there that I don't do on, on YouTube and that's my membership site. And that's another way uh, that I make money. I also sell merch. Oh, yeah. I have shirts um, that I sell. And I recently, thanks to you, this is something that you helped me with because I was of the belief that you can't really make that much money with affiliate marketing, but you proved me wrong. <laughs> and I recently started doing affiliate marketing, which is another great way to make money. So I think if you oh, spread yeah. your wings wide yes. on social media, if you have several income streams, I think it can, it can work out quite well. You, you know what's impressive to me and really is that you are doing everything by yourself, right? Like right. posting everywhere, right. doing everything. Right. Is that, you know, like how come, I guess my question is, how come you're not outsourcing any of those and do you just want to be in control of, of everything and how do you like find time to manage that? Like, is it an issue? Was it an issue before, would you think? Like, uh, you know, do you find yeah. time to do other things, you know, for yourself? Do you find right. time for yourself? Because I feel like with, you know, for example, I am outsourcing, you know, I have somebody right. that edits my videos, that posts on some flat mm -hmm. platforms, you know, because I have to come up with content, I have to record it. Right. You, you know, like, I want to, I'd rather spend time on like, thinking about what I need to do, coming up with new right. ideas while somebody else is doing the other work, you know, because then I have to, you of know, course. you know, so to me, it's really impressive. I'm like, does this guy sleep ever? Do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> That's no, a great question. This is you a know, serious question. It has to do with your, with everybody's personality. So I'm a little bit of a control freak. I'm very much a perfectionist. So it, it's very hard for me to outsource the editing part. Okay. Because when I edit a lesson, it has to make 
I have to make sure that the lesson is edited the right way and there's no way that somebody else would know how to edit my lessons properly. So it's such a unique type of video that is going to be very difficult for somebody else to know how to edit this. As far as the content is concerned, I'm not too worried about the effects and all that. Like that would be an okay thing to outsource for, you know, if they wanted to do some crazy effects on the videos and stuff like that. But as far as the content, it's very difficult for somebody else to get it right, especially if that somebody else has no idea about tennis. Of course, yeah. I, under, I understand. But what about what about um, posting on other platforms? Well, so on I find that posting on the other platforms is not really that time consuming. Okay. The short form video content that doesn't take me too long, and often I will clip highlights out of my long form content and make short form content out of that. So for me, that type of stuff is easy. But I got to tell you that since I started my membership site, I have outsourced a lot of things. So I do have uh, a team now. I do have customer service. Okay. I don't do a lot of things that I used to do, which is, for example, like, you know, give people refunds and answer questions about courses and stuff like that. Um, I do a lot less of that because I have a team that with a support staff that helps me with that. And I don't have to worry about my website anymore. Okay. I have developers. I also have apps. So I do have a lot of help now. Okay. But yeah. I feel like still, even though it might sound crazy to you, when it comes to like editing the video, I want to do it myself. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that will say to you, hey, it's a mistake. But I do think I'm in a, in a unique situation where it is tennis. It has to align with my methodology. And I feel like if I give content to someone to edit that doesn't know anything about tennis, I think it's going to be very difficult for them to get it right. I understand. But on the other hand, like, I don't know, as I'm getting older, I'm trying to really outsource as many things as yeah. possible. You know, I work with a great guy that does my videos mm -hmm. and he's a tennis coach and he's great. great, you know, so he understands tennis. But the thing is like, and I don't understand anything with editing. And right. you try teaching me and <laughs> many times. We had, many at least, times. We had and, three or four lessons. And I gave up on it because I just, I'm not passionate about that part. I'm passionate about being on the court and working on the content and coming up with new ideas, and, but not the editing. But can part. I tell you something? Remember when I told you you can be successful? on social media if you outsource those things. Yeah. It's perfectly okay to outsource. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the experts will tell you to outsource as much as you can because that's really the only way you can scale up. Exactly. So the fact that I'm doing what I'm doing is actually holding me back. I, I think so too. Yeah, but yeah. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I couldn't care less if yeah. I'm held back by yeah. that because I, I, I find that these videos are my legacy and yeah. the field of tennis instruction and yeah. I do treat this very seriously. And for that reason, even if it's not maybe the best business decision for me, mm -hmm. uh, as far as scaling, I am going to continue to edit my own videos. Yeah. Um, what's your, um, I just have a few more questions. Do you have, I feel like I look at you as a very successful person. I look at you as a very good coach, um, a very successful person too, like a business person, because you're okay. growing your business, you're growing your brand, you keep doing better and better each year. Mm -hmm. um, do you have 
goals? Do you have a vision? You know, like I, I just read a book, uh, it's called Inner Excellence. I don't know by who. But, you know, it talks a lot about how important it is to have some vision, some goal. Mm -hmm. You know, like what, you know, something that drives you. You know, you get Absolutely. up in the morning, oh, I have to like do this again. And, you know, like, no, what is your, you know, do you want to leave some legacy? Do you want to, you know, like what is your goal and vision? It's a really, really good question, Emma. It's a fantastic question. I did spend a lot of time learning about how to set the right goals. See, as a coach, I think it's very important to understand, understand psychology because tennis can be such a mentally difficult sport to handle. So I learned a lot about psychology and I apply it to my players. And what I've learned is that one of the biggest traps that you can fall into in tennis, and this can be directly related to other things in life, is when you set your goals too high. And so when you set your goals too high, it's a trap because if you happen to make that goal too unrealistic and you realize that you're never going to achieve it, you're going to get really down on yourself and you might quit. Mm -hmm. It would be much better to set small achievable goal, goals that are within your grasp and you have a happy feeling and you have something to look forward to. You achieve mm -hmm. one small goal, you go on to the next one. So mm -hmm. in tennis, like if I get a student who's like a 2.0, I'll tell him we'll get the 2.5, we'll get the 3.0, 3.5. Mm -hmm. We're not going to think about 5.0 right now. That's crazy because it's a trap. It can go terribly wrong. If you're a beginner junior player and you start thinking about playing in Wimbledon, it's a trap. Mm -hmm. You go step by step. So for me, I had to be realistic when I first started on YouTube and I did have confidence in my methodology. I'll be honest with you, I, I did think that I was going to be um, towards the top. And that was my goal. I wanted to be towards the top in that niche. Yeah. And yeah. I did achieve that goal. And uh, I am in the top of that, of that niche. But I have other goals that I want to achieve. Um, I am working towards those goals, whether they be um, in social media, certain metrics that I want to achieve. Mm -hmm. I am a numbers guy. I have certain metrics that I track. And it's a challenge for myself personally. I'm not, really, not going to get into specifics, but yeah, there are certain yeah. metrics that I yeah. look at and I, I do want to achieve these metrics. And this is for YouTube. Also, we're talking about finances. I have my own goals there too. So I'm a goal-driven person, but I always make sure that my goals are realistic. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. I like that a lot, like step-by-step, step, like not like dreaming you know like about i really well, love that i mean it's good to dream too about if you, big let's, things. let's say if you're if you're um, coco golf and you're dreaming of wimbledon that's a perfect goal mm -hmm. for her why because it's a realistic goal for her is realistic exactly because she has a realistic chance to get there exactly for her it's okay but what about the the player that's losing first round at a level uh, seven yes should yeah. that player be uh, thinking about winning wimbledon yeah Exactly. It's not. It's not a yeah. realistic goal. So no. that's all I'm saying. That player should be thinking about, you know, making the semis or making the finals at L7 and then going from there. Yeah. No, I, I like that a lot. You know, like step by step, but to have goals. I feel like it's so important to have goals. Right. You know, like it is. Of course. Um, in in any aspect, in you know, in any business, in anything that you're doing in life. Absolutely. You know, like getting up in the morning, something that drives you. You know. Um, and it's important, you know, I agree 100%. It, if it's numbers game, if it's whatever, 100%. Um, 
what I mean, I have so many questions for you, but we only have 10 more minutes. Um, I want to I want to ask you, do you have a coaching philosophy? Like what what do you like truly believe in like as a coach? Like what's important to you? You know, like um, yeah. I have a coaching methodology. I have a philosophy on coaching. And I'm very serious about these things when I'm on the court with players. And I teach the intuitive methods always. Now, I will apply different teaching tools to different players. So I don't teach everybody the same way. Yes. Also, I already told you that psychology is something that's very important. So I will also adjust my personality to different personalities on the court. So you cannot mm -hmm. be the same personality with everybody. And people can see this on my YouTube channel that I'm a certain way with Shamir on the court. I'm a certain way with Anna. I'm a certain way with you. But then I'm a, a different way with another student. Like I can adjust my personality to, to the student. It's very important because you can't, you have to make the student feel comfortable. So that is a whole nother aspect, is the psychological part of, of teaching. Another thing that I learned from my dad is that possibly the most important thing as a coach is the communication skills. You have to be a good communicator. You have to not only present your message to the student, but you have to make sure the student can grasp it. So you have, it's very, very tricky because you don't want to just sit there and just talk nonstop and it just goes in yeah. one ear out the other ear of the students. You have to make it so that your message can be understood by a five-year-old, for example. Yes. You're teaching a kid. Yeah. And yeah. it has to be understood and, and has to be done in a simple way. So that's what I try to do. I work really hard on, to adjust my language so that the student can grasp what I'm saying and can then put it into practice, whatever it may be. So that part is super important to me is the communication. And now, probably the most important thing, and it's another thing that I was influenced by my dad, is hard work and work ethic. My dad never allowed any shenanigans on the tennis court, never any, any goofing off on the tennis court because the tennis court was a serious place mm -hmm. where hard work is being done, and that's how I treat it too. I find that y you work hard, you put in the hours, you put in the reps, you treat it seriously, you're going to get the results. If you're on the court and you're goofing off, mm -hmm. you're not giving your best effort, you're going to have mediocre results. So I do treat this very seriously. Uh, people will say that I'm uh, somebody that's a tough coach. I can be. I, I'm someone who will make my students work hard. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll get them to the limit, to a safe limit. I never get anybody over the safe limit and endanger their health or anything like that. I, I, I do know from a lot of experience what the limit is, but I try to to push my players hard and I try to get the most out of them and because I feel like they benefit from that type of training the most. And so that to me are my values and all encompassed in the intuitive tennis methodology when we're talking about, you know, building the fundamentals, building the, building the proper a way to play tennis, which is based on learning the fundamentals and then letting certain technical elements develop on their own. So give me one book you recommend or more books. For tennis. Um, anything. Winning tennis. Ugly. Winning Ugly. I like that one. Um, 
someone that you look up to that motivates and inspires you. Mel Purcell. Okay. My college coach. And so in this, this life is all about balance, right? And mm -hmm. I feel like we're all trying to find it somehow. Mm -hmm. Like in tennis, not in tennis. And, and we're all trying to find it. How do you find yours? Well, I do have other hobbies and interests. And um, I'm not going to reveal one of them. But I do have another YouTube channel with something that I do just as a hobby. Okay. I'm not have any. I don't have any ambition to monetize this or turn it into a business. Mm -hmm. It's something I do for fun, and I do spend a lot of time with this specific thing. And then one thing that I did tell people about in certain occasions is that I, I am um, someone who has studied nutrition for a while, and I do like to cook, and I do like to study nutrition, and also. I am someone who does like to study um, psychology as well. So those are the things that, like I'm not only thinking about tennis. I see. I'm thinking about other things. I am capable of tuning tennis off and, and just start thinking about other things apart from tennis. I do okay. think it's important. You, don't, you can drive yourself crazy with tennis too. So I do think about other things. I have other hobbies. Also, uh, I take care of my daughter. I take care of my mom. And so I treat those two things very seriously and I do spend a lot of time with them mm -hmm. and so that's basically my balance I'm balancing my my tennis life with my hobbies and taking care of my loved ones yeah and and I, I think I, I do a good job at it no that's good it's so important just to find time for everything you know and to balance it all out because yeah. sometimes we get just so locked in right like just doing 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 this and then like to turn off the brain sure. to focus on and something you know that actually like yeah makes you happy i'm sorry to cut you off Emma. i really it's apologize okay. this was a really good podcast really great questions speaking of my daughter <laughs> she's gonna kill me i'm late no. i have to pick okay. her up from school no i want to thank you so much thank you will you have me back as I'll a have you number as 100 number 100 everybody please follow intuitive tennis everywhere and i look forward to connecting more and uh, thank you, doing Emma. more things i really together. appreciate it Thanks. Thank you.